You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. know me. My name is Russell. I am on staff here with Illini Life, and we are beginning a new sermon series today, which is actually a continuation of a year-long series that Illini Life is doing, and it's called Your Guide to Exile. And this series is focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, which is, some scholars would say, one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever preached. And for those of you joining us, the Sermon on the Mount can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. So if you do have a Bible, you can start flipping there. Matthew is great because it's the first book of the New Testament, right? So if you find the New Testament, you're pretty pretty close. As the title explains, right, we're going to be in this series for um, an entire school year. And and you may, may be wondering, why would you spend a whole school year in just three chapters of the Bible? It's a good question, and and I wanted to give you guys some reasons for that. So, the Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' longest and uninterrupted sections of teaching. And the length demands attention, right? That's one of the big reasons we're investing so much time into this. We want to pay close attention to Jesus' words. As well, the Sermon on the Mount is controversial, Thousands of gallons of ink have been spilled trying to understand the hard teachings of Jesus that are found in this, in this section. And then lastly, we really do believe that the Sermon on the Mount is going to help you not just navigate college, but it really can help you navigate your whole life as a Christian. Jesus tells us that we are exiles living in a foreign world, and, and that's why we name this Your Guide to Exile. Jesus is giving us a guide because earth, as you may know, is not our final destination, right? This is not our home, but earth is where we find ourselves even after we are saved. And Jesus is giving us a guide for how to live in this new life, in his kingdom today. If you can't recall, because it was about a month ago, Fred started us off with two sermons, um, and I want to encourage you guys to listen to those uh, sermons on our website, alinealife.org slash media, especially if you, you missed them. If you did hear them and you just can't remember, that's fine. I'd recommend you give them a second listen. But especially for those of you that haven't heard them, it's great to go and recap. And it'll help you connect the dots to what we're doing today. So Fred covered chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And 1 through 20, they're, they're best understood as the preamble to Jesus' sermon. It kind of gets us started as he launches into some really practical points about the nitty-gritty of daily life. And Jesus is going to be giving us a fuller understanding of one of the most fundamental sins that we struggle with as human beings. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at four, or actually several different sins. And we're, we're calling these sins killers. And that's the name of the series as well. This is volume two of your guide to exile, Killers. Because as we journey through exile onto our heavenly home, these sins will be threatening to kill the new life we have with Christ. And and not only are these killers a threat to your personal self-preservation, 
but they're a threat to relationship. They're a threat to the relationship that you have with your fellow man, but they're also a threat to your relationship with God. So that's why we're doing this. We want to give you a sober-minded warning that these things can kill. And that's why we're investing four weeks into just 27 verses. So what are the killers that we're going to be guarding ourselves from, right? Adultery, lust, divorce, breaking of oaths, retaliation, and hating our enemy. Nick Majeski, Alan Hobley, and, and Pastor Casey Summers, they're going to be coming alongside us and preaching these sermons over the next three weeks. And they're going to be helping us fill out our guide. Our guide is exiles. But before all that, we need to come face-to-face with the problem that we all struggle with. 100% of the room, this plagues us all. And that thing is anger. So God kind of, I don't know, I think he has a sense of humor, uh, to be honest. And uh, as I was prepping this sermon, I, I told Fred, I was like, you know, Fred, um, I haven't really felt angry to the point of wanting to murder someone yet. So I, I just don't know if I can really, like, connect to the content and, like, synthesize it to my, my friends here. But then the Lord provided. <laughs> so let me tell you a very sad story. Um, so for those of you that don't know, and uh, you couldn't tell from my binder, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. Yeah. Did you guys watch the game last night? Oh, Augustine, you could throw that picture up of me and Mickey. That's me and Mickey. We're, uh, the Cubs beat the Reds, so we threw it in their face. Ha ha, taunting. Um, so yeah, so I'm a Cubs fan, and I, I have this amazing flag with the letter W on it, which stands for win. And if you go to Wrigley Field, um, every day if the Cubs have won, they roll up a W flag so that people passing by on the L train in Chicago they can see whether the Cubs had won or lost for that day. So they do have an L flag as well. Those are not as popular as the W flag. So, you know, I love the Cubs. I, I watch as many games as I can. And when the Cubs win, I like to do this. This. I throw up my own W flag. So my, my friends and my neighbors and, and the girls and guys that live a couple houses on from me, so that they can know, did the Cubs win today? Sarah Weldy is constantly checking, did the Cubs win? So, tragically, something happened yesterday. Friday night, I'm waking up, minding my own business, opening the shades to a brand new day, right? You do that? You open the shades to the morning? And I open my shades and I see this. Yeah, I know, it brings... It genuinely makes me sad and angry. Um, I was in shock, to be honest. I called Megan into our room, and I was like, Megan, look what happened. Someone ripped our flag and stole it. And honestly, I quickly went from grief to anger. And I thought about, ooh, college students, they're the worst. This is my second flag that's been stolen. Why would they do that? They're probably drinking. Drunk college students are even worse than regular college students. 
Oh, and it was probably a Cardinals fan. I hate the Cardinals. No, it was probably a San Francisco Giants fan. I hate the Giants. All these stupid people walking down the block. I'm just trying to serve the neighborhood by letting them know if the Cubs won or if the Cubs lost. And I was mad. But let's set that aside and just have a moment of silence for the flag. Augustine, if you will. So, yeah, the, the Lord has a way of giving me a sermon illustration. But I genuinely, I am still angry today. The Cubs had an amazing win yesterday, and I, I was like, what's the point? I don't have a flag. <laughs> and I've left the tattered remains up so that whoever took it, I'm thinking Tim Weidick maybe, that he'll know that I know that it was him. But what did I want to do, Right? I couldn't retaliate against anyone. I don't know who did it. I could like, I kind of like walked up and down the block to see if I could find the flag, but it was gone. So who was I going to take it out on? Next slide, Augustine. (laughs) My sweet, precious wife. She was going to be the object of my wrath. And guys, if you ever get married and you're feeling angry and you want to just take it out on your spouse, think of her in her wedding dress. And it'll, it'll soothe all. Let's just leave that up for a little bit. Is that okay? <laughs> so I wanted to get mad. And I, I literally, I almost took it out on Megan. Because she was the only one home. And she was, you know, it, she would just become my scapegoat. But fortunately, by the grace of God, I'm teaching a sermon on anger. So I didn't. Um, I was close, though. Um, we did have to go into separate rooms, which was more because I was struggling focusing, but. All right, so let's go to from now. Yes. One time I called Megan aggressive in front of everyone, so I'm trying to, like, make up for it. All right, let's take that down. All the points I earned are lost. All right, so I, I just want you guys to know, right, that Anger is very real for me. This is not something I'm just teaching to you from some, like, platonic headspace, right? This is real. I struggle with anger. And I hope you guys know I'm sitting right next to you as I preach this to myself. This is tea. It's really hot. Sorry. You can see it steaming, can't you? Scary. All right. So let's turn to our scripture for the day and read what it has to say about anger. So like I said, we're going to be in Matthew 5, verse 21. Now, as we read Jesus' words, you're going to hear a very important phrase, okay? You're going to hear him say, you have heard that it was said. Every sermon that is preached in this series, Jesus is going to drop this line. And when you hear it, I want you to remember what Jesus said back in verse 17. For those of you that don't remember back to Fred's sermon, I'll I'll give you a refresher. Jesus told us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Many have mistakenly thought that the Sermon on the Mount was this treatise against the Old Testament. And and many Christians, and and I've heard this personally come out of people's mouths, they boast that they do not need the Old Testament. It's confusing, it's irrelevant, it's dated. And then, not only that, they'll falsely give Jesus credit for this wrong thinking. 
But I think what we'll see with this pattern that Jesus is setting up is not that he's abolishing the Old Testament, but he's fulfilling it. The NIV application commentary says it like this. Jesus will contrast his interpretation of the Old Testament with faulty interpretations and applications that have come before him. With each of these killers, and specifically today with anger, Jesus is going to demonstrate how the Old Testament is to be properly interpreted and properly applied, and thus the law and the prophets are being fulfilled. So as you read, let's take note of this pattern, right? First, Jesus will introduce an Old Testament passage with the distinct, you have heard that it was said. Can we all say that? You have heard that it was said. Very nice, very nice. Second, Jesus will then cite or allude to a popular interpretation of the passage, an interpretation of the time. And then Jesus, with all the authority of a mic drop, he will make a pronouncement of the intended meaning and application of the Old Testament. In a lot of ways, Jesus is very practically renewing our minds. And this pattern that Jesus gives us is so relevant today, more than it may have ever been, simply because the scriptures, Old and New Testament, they're under attack. And daily, false prophets, a.k.a. bloggers, they're constantly typing out new and fresh and never-before-seen interpretations of Scripture. And as we try out to sort all this information online in our heads, we have more information than ever about the Bible, any time in human history. We need to seek out the wisdom of King Jesus so that we can pick and understand what is most faithful and true to God's heart and mind. So friends, please, I plead with you, be careful with what you read on the internet, especially if it goes against Jesus, his teachings, and the other teachings found in the Old and New Testament. So with that in mind, let's read together Matthew 5, 21 through 26. If you guys want to turn or swipe, now's the time. All right. You have heard that it was said to those of old. There it is right there. You have heard that it was said. Shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So I don't know how many of you guys are asking people this question on the regular, but um, what's the one most common answer you hear when someone's asked, uh, hey, should you go to heaven? This used to be really popular in the, the 90s. It was like you go up to strangers and be like, how are you going to get into heaven, brother? You know, I don't know if you guys do that anymore, but. Just go along with me, right? Uh, what, what's the thing that people usually say? Uh, why, why should you get into heaven? Yell it. 
Oh, yeah. I never hurt anyone. I'm a good person. I never kill. Yeah, you nailed it. Maddie Chinuda, good job. Come on, get up for Maddie, people. That's what they say, right? Well, I'm basically a good person. I give to charity. I don't litter. And I mean, I've, I've never murdered anyone. Murder, right? It's the classic sin we all go to when we're trying to feel better about ourselves. I may have just lied to my parents, but at least I've never murdered anybody. I know I just lusted after that person, but I haven't murdered anybody. You know, I got super wasted last night. But I managed to not murder anyone. I am righteous. Murder is a unique sin, right? It's unique because of its finality. And it's especially unique in this privileged campus academic setting because it's not something that you guys are struggling with. I'm not counseling students because they can't stop murdering people. And, and because of this, right, it's an easy accolade for you to hang your hat on and, and, and just be like, man, I'm really killing it when it comes to being a Christian because I'm not killing it. I'm not killing anything. So Jesus takes that sin, right? And, I, and I'm imagining a lot of the people on the mount, I don't think a lot of these people were murderers either. So he takes that sin. It's the granddaddy of all sin. It's, it's as old as Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons. And what does he do? Jesus fulfills the law and he gives us a proper interpretation and application. And here's the thing, right? Even if I was preaching in, in a prison ministry to a room full of uh, people that have been convicted for homicide, the things that Jesus has to say is applicable to even them. Murder is a fruit of a terrible and nasty tree. And that tree is named anger. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to, ju- to judgment. So let me ask you guys, could we just, by showing of hands, who here has gotten angry? Is there anyone not raising their hand? I can't see. Nah, I see you. You never got angry? I'm not going to call you out. Okay. <laughs> You're like, I'm getting angry right now. <laughs> All right. I'm assuming that everyone raised their hand, right? So, so what that means, unfortunately, is that everyone who has raised their hand is liable to judgment, right? We are all guilty. I was angry about my flag being stolen. I have a dear friend who gets angry when the, the quarterback of the Denver Broncos cannot make a pass longer than five yards. And even little, sweet, precious, five-month-old Ava, when she is hungry, she has a different cry that is an angry cry. And it is to let you know, Mom, Dad, where the heck is the food? And she can't even talk, but she's learning to get angry. Good job, Ava. So what Jesus is trying to do, right, he's trying to get us all on the same level. We, we, we may not be committing acts of homicide, right? But the anger we have in our heart is just as destructive and just as deserving of punishment. Because you can't get to murder unless you have anger first. Let's continue on in verse 22. Jesus says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So 
So the phrase insults his brother is shown sometimes in different translations. So if you have a, an NIV, it'll say the word raka. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka. And this is an Aramaic word, right, that can be transliterated basically to empty-headed, which, you know, in our American context isn't super insulting. I guess I could be like, oh, Brooke, you're so empty-headed. <laughs> She'd be like, who are you? You're an old person? But in its essence, let's go back in the time machine. It, it was a really nasty phrase of contempt. And as you may have guessed, I, I struggled for many nights trying to think of a church-friendly word that wouldn't offend anyone, but I couldn't. So let's just hear what Dallas Willard, Willard how he put it. Dallas says, our verbal arsenal, and this is in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, our verbal arsenal is loaded with contemptuous terms. Just think, you can think of them in your head right now. Some with sexual, some with racial, some with cultural bearings. Others just personally degrading. When you're learning a foreign language, what's the first things you learn? The swear words, right? The insults. So that's what Jesus is saying is that name calling is serious, right? Because those who call others names were liable to the council. And and what what this is was the council is referencing the Sanhedrin, which was basically... We don't really have this anymore um, in America, but it was like a religious court. So if you had a religious dispute between you and a brother, you would go to the Sanhedrin and get a verdict. But in its essence, it's the same thing. It, it's, it's just Jesus trying to say whoever insults his brother um, is deserving of punishment. Jesus shows us that anger never stays in a vacuum. It lashes out and its victims tend to be, tend to be those closest to us. Our anger leads to contempt, and it leads to name-calling. And beyond just name-calling, it leads us to strip away personal identity. Continuing on in verse 22. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, when I was a kid growing up in church, I was terrified, legitimately terrified, of calling someone a fool. Because I had heard this verse, and I was like, well, this is it. The unforgivable sin. If, If I let this slip out... I'm a goner. It's a scary verse, right? If you just read it for what it is. It's kind of intense, and its consequences are dire. And I think the reason Jesus is being so emphatic here is because he cares about human dignity. The Greek word that we translate as fool is moros, which can be understood as a moron or someone who consistently acts like an idiot, which you may accuse me of at times. Um, And even today, calling someone a moron is highly insulting. Calling someone a fool is highly insulting. I I don't remember the last time someone genuinely called me a fool. But what was happening in that Jewish culture is that they were removing someone's name. And to remove your name was very, very grievously insulting to that person. And basically what they were saying then and what we're saying now is that you are no longer image bearer of God. By removing your name, I am saying to you, you are just an empty-headed moron. You lack value, you lack intelligence, and you lack worth. You are telling someone, you are not human. 
Now, for savvy listeners, you're noticing how this connects to our previous sermon series, Imago Day, right? The foundation for the commandment to not murder was because all people have Imago Day. All people are image bearers of God. And because of this, he makes a special prohibition that we, image bearers, are not allowed to murder other image bearers. We are not allowed to end the life of someone else. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that even before you can get to that place where you're ready to to murder somebody, because honestly, none of us have been there. It's our anger that we're going to be most susceptible to dehumanizing someone. So before you can murder, you have to remove their humanity. Does that make sense? We see this pattern of how in our anger we participate in the act of image removal. We dehumanize Imago Dei, and we say to our fellow man, you are no longer an image bearer of God. So here's kind of how it flows out of us, right? We get angry. We remove personhood. Baraka is an example of that. And we treat others with contempt. You fool. I don't know about you, but I, I think thanks to late night comedy, thanks to Twitter, thanks to social media comments, which I don't know why I keep reading them, um, it's like an addiction. I've become numb to how angry American society is right now. And I'm not speaking of righteous indignation against social injustice, right? I'm talking about the level of anger people feel when they decide to reboot Ghostbusters with a female cast. I'm talking about the verbal abuse that athletes will face if they give up a touchdown or make an interception. Or celebrities, if they make a faux pas. Or even if they don't, they're just kind of innocently on Twitter getting attacked for how they look or how they dress or the race that they are. I'm talking about the name calling that is constantly hurled by late night hosts for the entertainment of the masses. We, my friends, live in a mean culture. And in reflecting on this sermon, I'm struck. I've been struck by how much of our anger is rooted in dehumanization. And I've been shocked and I've honestly been convicted because I I like a good name call by just how damaging name calling can be. And notice something with me. I, I notice that name calling is tied up with animals. When a man is angry at a woman, he will call her the B word, right? Which is the term for a female dog. When one of your friends is super annoying, I get called this a lot, actually. What do you call them? Don't say it. You call them the alternate name for a donkey, right? Right? Yes, we do. No, I never do. Um, You do. So... And continuing on, in Middle, in Middle Eastern culture, right, what, what's one of the most grievous insults you can hurl against someone? It's to call them a dog. Closer to home, when a person is trying to cope with being unjustly harassed and stopped and frisked by police, what will they call those officers? We'll call them pigs. And those same cops, as they try to cope with crime scenes and as they try to cope with the nightly potential of being killed on duty— They will dehumanize the very citizens they're called to serve and protect and lump whole groups of people by describing them as animals. 
We use animals as insults because animals are not image bearers. The easiest way to stay angry at someone is to remove their humanity. It's to push them lower on the totem pole and it's to make them not human. It's to make them an animal. Name-calling matters because it's the first step we take on a dark road towards dehumanizing someone. And it's the first step we take towards a long road of being able to murder someone. And again, that's what Jesus' whole point is. Murder comes a long way after anger. So shouldn't we be dealing with our anger? So this can feel hopeless, right? Anger is everywhere, and and Jesus is taking it very seriously. So what hope is there? Well, fortunately, the people of God, those of us that are exiled, we have a chance to look and act differently. Let's finish the passage off. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Do you guys see it? Do you see what Jesus is getting at? Jesus is telling us we are to pursue reconciliation and we are to pursue it quickly. Jesus gives us a religious example and a civil example. And the first one is very simple, right? He's basically showing that before you come and make a gesture of worship, before you come to church and put on a show, you're to make it right with anyone that you're angry with. And I think this is an easy temptation for us to fall into as Christians, right? We get, we get into this trap of thinking, well, my outward religious gestures, they will compensate for the inner anger I am not willing to deal with. Jesus echoes Psalm 51, which says, For you, O Lord, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these things. In essence, friends, do not let your acts of worship conceal the anger you may have towards others, especially if you're holding someone anger against someone in this very lecture hall. Don't let the fact that you're a greeter or that you're on the worship team or that you give 10% of your income or that you lead a small group, don't let these offerings that you are making stand in the way of you reconciling with someone you're angry with. Or even more radical, if you are concerned that someone may be angry with you going and pursuing a conversation with that person. And please hear me. I I am literally struggling with this sin as we speak. I'm angry with family, I'm angry with friends, and I'm angry with others. And it's a challenge because contempt, I have found, it takes less effort. But unfortunately, contempt is much more severely damaging than reconciliation. The last example Jesus gives is admittedly a little confusing because we don't have context for it. But basically, Jesus is using a civil example of being brought to court for a dispute. And he's being very pragmatic here, right? 
if you're getting sued or someone's bringing you to court, try to reconcile things before it gets to that point. More than simply discharging legal affairs, Jesus' disciples, those of us in exile, we are to seek a kind of reconciliation that creates friendships out of our adversarial relationships. Again, Dallas Willard puts it well. Here Jesus tells us to be well-disposed or kindly-minded towards our adversary in the preliminary interactions that might lead up to a trial. Try with genuine love for the adversary to resolve matters before it comes to trial. And I don't know how many of you are getting sued this morning, but um, basically, as best as you can, Jesus is saying, settle things out of court. And Jesus ends again this passage with the imagery of being trapped in a prison where you can't ever pay off your debt because you're not earning enough in that prison. The more urgently you can make things right with your accuser, the more urgently you can make things right with someone who's angry with you, the better chance you have of avoiding unnecessary consequences. It is, of course, better to make things right with your accuser than the rotten jail. Now, as we come to the end of this passage of Scripture, and and we're reflecting, right? We're reflecting on the challenging words of Jesus right now. I wonder how many of you are asking, but Russ, is it a sin to be angry? Is it a sin to be angry? I think the Bible is very clear. The answer is no. Else the very man who's teaching us this sermon, he would be considered a sinner. Later on in in this very Gospel of Matthew in chapter 21, we see an angry Jesus turning over tables in the Jewish temple, right? Money lenders and merchants had turned a holy space. They turned a church into a mall. And Jesus flipped out. And he he literally flipped over tables. And in his anger, he was righteous. And in his anger, he did not sin. Ephesians 4.26 affirms this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And I think this is a hard teaching for us because if you've grown up in the church or you've grown up around Christian people, we've been taught that being angry is sinful. So the only solution that we have is to stuff it and to hide it. I wonder, though, I really do wonder, what freedom would you have if you felt like you could acknowledge the anger you have with someone and reconcile it? And to be honest, I wonder how many of you in this very room are going to end up walking away from the church because you're angry with a fellow believer, or worse, because you're angry with God and you just can't bring yourself to admit it. And as exiles, that's the first thing we have to do. Exiles don't suppress their anger. We acknowledge its presence. We realize that it's not a simple experience, but rather we recognize that it's what we choose to do in the seconds and the hours and the days that follow that anger. If you've seen Inside Out, anger is an emotion that bubbles up from the same place as happiness, sadness, fear, and disgust. Willard again says anger first arises spontaneously. It just happens, right? My flag was gone and I was sad and then angry, you know, and then sad. But Willard says we can actively receive it and we can actively decide to indulge in our anger. And if we're being honest, we usually do. 
If we never acknowledge our anger, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out anyway. And it's usually going to come out in a violent expression. And that's one of the ways exiles live differently. We acknowledge our anger. And I had to do this with Megan, right? I, I realized that I, I wanted to lash out on her. And I just, I just asked her, you know, like, uh, I forget exactly what I said, but I, I tried to just acknowledge, like, I feel like I'm being a jerk right now. And I just wanted to, you know, we kind of talked through it and I was able to, to process and get some support from her. And it helped diffuse my, my anger about the flag and I was able to go back to being sad. Um, and that's what we need to do, right? We need to practice these things with immediacy. The second thing exiles don't do is exiles don't indulge their anger. Anger is hungry, right? And it wants to be fed. And the two things that Jesus showed us that it wants to feast on is name-calling and contempt. The primary way, though, that we starve out anger as it bubbles up is to practice urgent reconciliation. You seek out the person you're angry with, or even more radical, like I said earlier, you seek out the person that might be angry with you, and you try to make it right. You pursue peace. Like it said in Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And you know why the Bible is so urgent about this? From my experience, I've found if I don't address an anger issue with someone in in that day, I'm usually not going to address it with them. I'll put it away in my file cabinet. I'll file it away under the section that says points that I could use to retaliate if we ever get into an argument. And I just kind of save it, you know, instead of dealing with it and not holding that record against them. And admittedly, I'm, I'm struggling with this over my flag. I, I feel like I hate Cardinal fans more than ever, you know. But I think Tim and I, were going to talk and... We'll make it. Because that's what we do do, right? That's what we do do. (laughs) Exiles reconcile their anger. My prayer for us in Illini life is not that we would be anger free, right? That's unrealistic. But rather that we would acknowledge the angry feelings we have towards each other. And that we would learn to follow Jesus' instructions. And first be reconciled to your brother or your sister. I pray that you guys actually do this. And I'm telling you, this will lead to some drama in the short term. This may not go well on your first or your second try. But I think long term, if we practice this as a church, we're going to be more united, we're going to be more loving, and we're going to be more tenacious because we're not going to let anger divide this body. So please, proceed with caution. As well, seek out those you're angry with and try as far as it, was, as it is within your power to be reconciled. And lastly, just a word for those of you that are angry with God. I do sincerely pray that you would take a moment to confess that anger. Leave your gifts at the altar. Leave your acts of service. Leave your religious persona behind. And quietly or loudly confess your feelings to him. And see how you can make it right. I don't want you to walk away from this space because you have unresolved anger with your creator. And as a staff team, and I'm speaking on behalf of other leaders in our church, HF leaders, we'd love to walk alongside you and help work with you through your anger with God so that you can be 
fully reconciled to Him. Many people over this century have declared God dead. And I wonder if they've committed this act of mental murder because they are actually just upset with Him in the ways they believe He may have failed them. So I'd like to invite the band up as we um, close today. I just, I just pray that, you know, for, for a time that we would, like I said, like, get messy with it. It, it, it is going to be painful. It is going to be awkward. But I do think if we could just take these steps and choose to engage with, with each other and choose to engage with God, um, I think we're going we're gonna to be better for it. So, um, Exiles, we handle anger differently. And I pray that you will be people that don't avoid being angry, but that when they experience anger, they righteously deal with it. So would you guys stand and pray with me?